few weeks ago, John, our gospel writer, uh, Tommy was doing the sermon that day, gave us the story of Nicodemus. And of course, Nicodemus was a Jewish man who was a Pharisee, and he was a teacher of the law. He was a person who religiously and socially, he had a lot going for him as a person when he comes to Jesus with questions. We have today presented to us by John an unnamed woman who in many respects is kind of like the mirror image of Nicodemus. In contradistinction to Nicodemus, she's a woman, she is a Samaritan, and her life situation, though we don't have exactly what the specific information is about how she had this situation, how she got into what will be described in the text itself, her situation is suspect. It's painful. It's difficult. She's living with a man who is not her husband. This unnamed woman and Nicodemus, they are different people. One is orthodox, and the other is kind of a mixed half-breed smattering of, of, of theology and things that she's heard from various places that come together. One is from one side of the tracks, and the other is from the other side. And to say it as simply as could possibly be said, and as many others have said before me, and I'm sure you've heard as well, what did Nicodemus and the woman at the well have in common? They both need Jesus. From two totally different status, stati, they both need Jesus. Their souls are restless. Their lives and their hearts are unsettled. Like us, Nicodemus and this woman, they may not have been able to articulate and tell us exactly why they have this emptiness. Why do they have these feelings that are going on inside of their hearts? Why do they have the sense that something's not right inside of them? That is often the case for us. You know something is wrong, but you can't put your finger on exactly what it is. Something is off, but I can't tell you exactly what it is that is off in my heart or it is in my life. And Jesus helps both of them to identify the need that they have, the needs that they have in their souls. And he points those things out to them through the physical realities of the world that is either immediate, right before them, or with which they are very familiar. Jesus is going to, he's going to uncover their souls. He's going to force them to look at the nakedness, at even the sinfulness of their own souls. But he's not only going to do that, he's not only going to strip them down, he's also going to provide for them a remedy. He's also going to provide for them clothing and satisfaction. I think the easiest way to work through this passage today, and there are a lot of ways to look at this passage because there is a lot that is happening in the verses that are before us. But I think what we'll do is we'll follow 
the physicality of the discussion. That's how this discussion goes. And I want to use that to work our way through the text today because I think it is the easiest thing for us. So what we'll do is we'll look first at water, and then we'll look at husbands, and then we'll look at mountains. Okay, because those are the three sections. Those are the three physical things that are being discussed about uh, here with Jesus and this woman. Okay, so first we start with the water. This encounter takes place at what is called Jacob's well. Now, we don't have a biblically significant account of Jacob digging a well at this particular place. We can't point to some place in Genesis and say, listen, here is what we're talking about. Jacob is, is digging this well at this place. We can read of a lot of wells that were dug, especially by Isaac, um, some by Abraham as well. But in any case, we don't have anything significant about this well. However, this location where we are is a biblically important place that we can reference. We can kind of look at it and go, okay, this is the place where when Abraham came into the land, this is right near the place where he established his first altar to the Lord. As we read within this text, this is the piece of land that Jacob had given to Joseph. This is where, right around this area, where Joseph himself, his bones are buried in this area. And we are here at this point, kind of not between, but we're in the shadow of two pretty significant mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Uh, now, if you'll recall, I know uh, some of you weren't here for this, when we were in Joshua and we were preaching through Joshua, this is some pretty significant stuff that takes place here between these two mountains, Joshua chapter 8 for reference that you can take a look at uh, later. So it's a significant place. Jesus comes to this place, and let's note this as he comes to he is tired and thirsty. He's been journeying and he's tired and thirsty, which is to say simply, and you've got to appreciate this stuff as it comes along in the Gospels, he's a man. He's a human being. And through travel and through ministry and through time and when he doesn't have enough to eat and when he doesn't have enough to drink and when he's traveling a lot, he gets hungry and he gets thirsty. I don't know if we need to say this, but at least it's worth saying because we know of the miracles of Jesus, particularly the miracles of Jesus that are recorded for us in these chapters right around here. Jesus wasn't in the habit of providing for himself via miracles. He didn't just go, oh, okay, well, I don't have any wine today. I think I'll change some water into wine and do that all the time. Or I think I'll make water come out of this rock. Or I'll produce bread whenever I'm feeling hungry. He was a man, and for the most part, except when he's witnessing to something or giving testimony, he lived as a human being and had and experienced the things that we experience. So he and his disciples are journeying through Samaria. Now they're going, if you re recall the story, they're going from Judea in the south, and because of the word getting out about his baptismal ministry, and Jesus not wanting there to be some kind of a revolt or uh, some kind of contention going on at this point in his ministry, is traveling from Judea in the south and heading up towards Galilee, where he has been before. So we're heading up to this direction here. But between those two points is Samaria. Now, you could have gone around, you could have crossed the Jordan and avoided that completely, but the shorter, more direct course was to travel through Samaria, but that was no small thing 
because as we read in this text, Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. That's the history of that. Uh, again, just briefly here to summarize the history of this. After the death of Solomon, circa 900 BC or so, you have the division of the kingdom into two halves. The southern half is called Israel, and uh, pardon me, the northern half is called Israel, and the southern half is called Judea. The capital of that northern kingdom is called Samaria. And as a rule, neither the kings nor the people of Samaria, or if you want to call it Israel or the northern kingdom, none of them followed after the Lord. And as a result, the Lord declares that he is going to judge this rebellious nation, this northern kingdom of Israel. And in 722 BC, he brings the Assyrian army into that portion of Israel to destroy that kingdom. Many people, as a result, are destroyed. Others are deported and scattered over the area. But there are a few remaining people who stay in that area. The Assyrians use people from other nations and their own to populate that newly conquered area. So they send people to that place. And what you end up with is this kind of melting pot, a hodgepodge, a mix of people from various races and various religions who kind of come together to form this group now referred to as the Samaritans. There's more to the history that we could look at than that. But the point is simply this. Orthodox Jews, believing Jews, despise them for this. They despise their mixed nature. They despise their confused theology and the confused worship and the rival worship that the northern kingdom had started from the beginning and hadn't even changed up to this point. To associate with them, to eat with them, or to talk with them, to use the utensils that they used, the kind of same things to drink with or draw, you do any of that stuff and you become, as an Orthodox Jew, contaminated yourself. You become dirty yourself, not just in an icky, yucky kind of way, but in a, in a deeply religious way, in a way that you say, I can't associate with this people because that is offensive to God to associate with this kind of people who are dirty and unclean. And so, for religious reasons, for historical reasons, for cultural reasons and social reasons, this woman at the well did not expect any type of conversation to go on with the Jewish man who was sitting across from her, sitting near her as she was getting water from the well. In this setting, with, with that background, a request, which sounds to us like, like the easiest, most normal thing you can possibly imagine, give me a drink, it shatters the silence. It, it, it's actually breaking down a barrier. It is shocking that he would talk to her. Salvation, which comes from the Jews. That's what we read later in the text, right? As, as it moves along. Salvation, which comes from the Jews, has just stepped beyond the boundaries. 
as he talks to this woman. It's just crossed over. Think, remember for a moment, Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, we're not at the uttermost parts of the earth right now. What we're doing is taking a step from Judea into Samaria with this salvation. That's what's happening when he says to her, give me a drink of water. Now, of course, she doesn't realize what's going on. She, she doesn't realize the significance of that. She, she's shocked by it, obviously by her reaction, but she doesn't realize the significance of it. But every statement that Jesus makes in this section is laced with Old Testament imagery and references to salvation. Whether you're talking about the gift of God in verse 10 or the living water that's being offered or the promise of never thirsting again or a spring welling up into eternal life. I tried to give a couple of examples of that throughout the service today from our call to worship to the Old Testament reading. Uh, they're just throughout the Old Testament allusions to this same idea that is being proffered by Jesus to the woman. Jesus, who had asked for physical water, is actually offering something. The question seems like a request, or, and it is a request for something physical, but he's actually offering something through the request. He's offering life-giving, soul-quenching water, and she can't see it. When you, I suspect, when you know, we've heard this story before, when we hear this story, when we hear Jesus speaking these words, we kind of think of her and we go, why isn't she getting it? Why isn't she getting what we can say when, when he goes, you're offering living water, great, I'll take the living water. But she doesn't see it. Sometimes, here's the reality. We are so preoccupied with the physical with the schedule, with the things that need to get done, the things that are right in front of us, the things that demand our attention. We can't get away from the things that we've got to do. We're so preoccupied with that that we miss the cry of the soul. Soul's crying out for something, but we're too busy. We've got things to do. I've got to get this water. I'm here at the well at the middle of the day. I've got to get the water. I've got to take the water back home for whatever it is we need water for in our households. She's skeptical. Are you greater than Jacob? You've got living water to offer? Are you, are you greater than Jacob, she asks. Now, I kind of alluded to this last week as well. In a few chapters, in a few chapters, the Jews are going to accusingly ask Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? Are you greater than Jacob, our father? I would love to have seen Jesus' face right at that moment. Now, I'm sure with the, with the Jews, it was a face of derision. And she's skeptical as well here. Are you greater than Jacob? You know, you'd love to fill it in with later, John, right? You'd love, you'd love for him to say, before Jacob was, I am. But you, you know, he's sitting there going, uh, yes, as a, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, I am. Now, that's reading into it. But you know he's thinking exactly this. 
to the end of this section, all the way to verse 15, sir, give me this water so I'll never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is, she's still thinking physical. She's still thinking, listen, if you've got a way to get a pipe that runs from this well back to my house so that I don't have to come here and we can have indoor plumbing and it comes right on when I turn the faucet, please. That'd be terrific because I'd love to quit carrying water back and forth. She's thinking physically of thirst. Now we move in this passage then from that point, from, from water to husbands with her still thinking on an earthly level. Jesus makes another request, another command, another imperative. Go call your husband and come here. Now this is an unexpected turn. At least as it's recorded for us, we don't have any discussion of family or husbands up to this point. Why does Jesus bring up husbands at this juncture? Clearly from this text, and we understand here and looking at it, Jesus in his divinity knows this family. He knows her history. He knows what the reality of her situation is. It is a painful history. It is a painful present that she is enduring. It's hard for us to know the why or the how of this being her history. We don't know. Did the husbands die along the way? Was it a series of tragic deaths that caused this to occur? Was this a situation where men were abusing her and taking advantage of various situations and taking advantage of her? Or was it her sin that was actually at the root of some of this? We don't know. We don't know what's going on here, whether it was any one of those things or some combination of those things. But clearly, as Jesus brings this up to her, he has hit a nerve. He's found a soft spot, a, a chink in her armor. Some topics have can I say, a, a direct route to our souls, a direct route to our heart, a lot of times because of the experiences that we've had in our lives. So this week, uh, I was talking with a group of guys, and somehow cancer came up. And one guy immediately checked out of the conversation. You could see him physically shut down, and, and, and we were kind of like, what? he said, I'm sorry, I, I just can't talk about that. It's my wife. It's too, close. it's too close to home. Some things hit us right in the soul. And that's what happens here when Jesus asks about the husband. As the, design, as the divine physician, Jesus is saying, woman, listen, I know you. I know your life. I know your soul, and I know that you are not well. You need to know that. You need to admit that. You need to be able to say, I'm not well. In the context, woman, you need to be able to see that you need something more than physical water. And that's what he's poking at right here. That's what he's able to do. He's the son of God. We don't have this ability. But he's able to go right to that spot and to expose 
this part of her heart and soul. You need living water that will cleanse and refresh your soul. Let me give you a connection from last week's sermon. In last week's sermon, we were listening to some of the final words in the gospel from John the Baptist. And in those words where he's trying to say, listen, I'm not jealous of the ministry of Jesus. He says, it's like a friend who's attending the wedding and, and I'm the friend who's attending and he's the bridegroom and it is the bridegroom who gets the bride. And so I'm rejoicing in the increase of the ministry of Jesus here because he gets the bride. John 3, 29. Now listen to these words from Isaiah 54. After describing that salvation is going to come and it's going to encompass more than just Judah and even Israel, we read, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Now imagine this woman having this background. Imagine her hearing some of this. I'll get to why she wouldn't have in a moment. Fear not, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth. When she is cast off, says your God. Behold, the bridegroom gathering up the bride. And the bride doesn't come just from amongst Orthodox Jews. A bride from Samaria. But she pivots one more time. She pivots from water to husbands, Jesus pivots to husbands, and then she brings up mountains. And we kind of ask the question, why? <laughs> now, how is this connected? Now, maybe this is a deflection from a painful subject. We've all been in situations like this, right? Somebody's asking us a line of questions that is clearly uncomfortable to us, and we change the subject because we'll talk about anything. In, instead of talking about that which is painful to our souls, that which is so honest to us. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's a genuine question that she's had. Maybe she's always wrestled with this theologically. She's been a Samaritan, but she's wondered maybe the Jews are correct. And now that she is sitting with this man who she recognizes is a prophet of some sort, I, I've always had this nagging question, let me ask him this question. Maybe that's the reason for her pivot. But I want to allow for another possibility. Namely, let's assume that some spiritual work has been going on in her heart throughout this conversation, through the words of Jesus. And now she has a pricked conscience a broken heart, now she's starting to realize the thirst that she has in her soul, and what she recognizes at this point is, how do I get to God? How do I go to God and pour out my heart 
before him. How do I get to worship? How do I get to the place where God is? Now, at first, when when you first think about this, you might think, hey, it's a long distance between a, a discussion about husbands and a discussion, on the other hand, about mountains for worship. But marriage and worship and sexuality and worship are not as far apart from one another as we might initially think. Think of the requirements. We were in Exodus a while back. Think of the requirements for the people of Israel for approaching Sinai to worship, abstaining for three days. Think of the sin of Israel in the incident with the golden calf. The people rose up and played while Moses was on top of the mountain. Think of the book, the prophet Hosea. Think of the way that the Old Testament so frequently associates idolatry with adultery. Think of how David needs to confess his sexual sin before he returns to worship, before he can lead once again God's people in worship. Think of Paul, who says, don't be linked with a prostitute, for your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or think of Malachi. Why is God not receiving our worship? That's the question that they ask. And the answer, or one of the answers, is because you're not being faithful to your wife, though she is your wife by covenant. She's confronted, the woman at the well, by the mess of her marital life and her mixed sexual past and present. Where do I go? Where do I go to find help, to find a little bit of mercy? When I'm confronted by this reality, when I'm in this situation, do I go to this mountain or do I go to that mountain? Where do I go? Our fathers said this mountain, which is Gerizim. It's not mentioned there, but that's the, that's the mountain that she's talking about. Our fathers said go to Gerizim and worship on that mountain. That was an important mountain. Uh, we're not going to turn to it right now. You can look at it later if you're interested. Deuteronomy 27 and the end of Joshua chapter 8 will show you how significant Gerizim was as a mountain and why the Samaritans might be tempted to think that that was the mountain. But the Samaritans accepted only the Pentateuch. They didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. They accepted only the Pentateuch. And of course, it's after the Pentateuch wherein Jerusalem is established as the mountain. Mount Zion is established as the dwelling place of God, the place where he will set his name. In essence, what Jesus says to her is, you are worshiping the wrong God, a God whom you do not know. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. It's not a God. It's not God that you're worshiping. 
you worship what you don't know, it sounds like Paul confronting the Athenians in Acts, right? An unknown God. You worship what you do not know, and you worship what you do not know in the wrong place. And there's no salvation there. Salvation is from the Jews who worship a God that they know. We worship what we know, Jesus says. For salvation is from the Jews. And we worship at the right place. That's where you go. That's where you go to meet God, to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. But, but dear woman, a time is coming and is now here where place is not the issue. God is not bound by space or exclusive to place in his meeting with men. He had bound himself to space for the sake of mankind, but he wasn't limited to that space. But a time is coming when even that comes to an end. The Father is seeking worshipers. Note the language that's going back and forth here. She's saying, our father Jacob. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Jesus says to her, the Father. Let me clarify something. I'm talking about the Father. I'm not talking about Jacob. I'm not talking about your fathers. I'm talking about the Father is actually seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. That is a beautiful phrase, and it's a loaded phrase, and I'm sorry to tell you that we are not going to unpack it right now. We're going to allow John to unpack that phrase through the rest of the book, and it will get unpacked for us. For now, woman, people of God, what you need to know is that God is seeking worshipers. Listen to the language here. He is seeking worshipers with a broken spirit and a contrite heart who know who he is truthfully by his own self-revelation. Spirit and truth Imagine her reaction. A broken spirit, check. I've now got a broken spirit, a contrite heart. My life has been exposed. She now has those things, a thirst she recognizes. But how do I know the truth? How, how do I know what is true? I've heard, what I've heard out there is when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. When Messiah comes, he'll tell us the truth. He'll settle for us what mountain is the right mountain. Where are we supposed to worship? John's always connecting to the prologue. John 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. I've heard when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. Before the dawn... It is dark. It is darker. I was up long before the dawn this morning. I went outside. I hoped to get a little glimpse of the meteor stuff that was going on. I never did. I was missing. Uh, we're living in the city. We're living in the suburbs. You can't ever get a glimpse of meteor showers. It's dark. 
but then the light begins slowly. Before this woman sitting before is the one who is living water, is the one who is the bridegroom gathering his bride, the one who himself is the dwelling place of God with men. He's the living water. He's the bridegroom. He's the mountain. He's the place where you can meet with God. But he's greater than any mountain. He's greater than the temple. And yes, he's greater than Jacob. And in a moment that is dear to this woman and dear to all humanity, the sun creeps up over the horizon and the Son of God says, I who speak to you am he. He doesn't say that to Jews. He doesn't say it in Judea because to say it would stir up riots, would cause crowds, would have political connotations. But to this Samaritan woman, broken and contrite, who needs to know where to find hope, where to find truth, I who speak to you am he. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Then come and drink. Are you weak? and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, and come and drink. Have you trials and temptations? Is there pain and is there sin that is crushing your soul right now? Let me try and cover over it real quickly, change the subject. <laughs> I got things to do. I don't have time to listen to this. You come and drink. Come to Jesus and drink wine and milk and water without money and without cost. The tired and thirsty man at the well is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Don't stiff arm him. Don't stiff arm him. Don't stiff heart him. Don't act as if you have no chinks in your armor. Don't act as if all's well with your soul and you don't have any troubles. Embrace him. Our son of God, let's pray. Gracious Jesus, thank you for finding us. Thank you for seeking us. Thank you for persisting with us. Even when we pretend, we pray that as believers, we would never shy away from the cry of the soul, but we would take it to you and find the living water afresh. And if there are those who are here today who have not believed, Lord, reveal yourself to them. And may this be the day when they cry out looking to help from you, our God and our Savior.
Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.